Portions of the day's programming are reproduced by means of electrical transcriptions or tape recordings. Uh, good day. Hi, hello, and welcome, everyone. This is Locked On ACC, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm Brian Wilmer. I'm your host. Tuesday, February 4th, 2020 is today's date. Another fun show planned for you today. We'll talk about the two main sports that are mentioned in our podcast description, football and basketball. We'll also get into some baseball talk a little bit, believe it or not. We will talk about baseball. It's February 4th, but we'll talk about baseball today. Before we get into any of it, the usual housekeeping stuff. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can. That is at LockedOnACC. Again, at LockedOnACC to follow us on Twitter. You can also send us an email Locked on ACC at gmail.com. I will again encourage you as I did yesterday. If you have thoughts that you want heard on the program, feel free to send those to us in a voice memo. Locked on ACC at gmail.com. Again, keep it to a minute or so. We have a very short program. Also, try and keep it clean. We're not necessarily requiring that you go all G rated on us, but try and keep it somewhat mindful of a family program. Appreciate you. Let's start with basketball. We had one game going on in the ACC last night. Carolina, these struggles continue for Carolina. The Tar Heels fall at Florida State 65-59. Trent Forrest and Patrick Williams each had 14. They paced the Seminoles last night. Williams, interesting kind of look at Williams' game last night. He attempted just four field goals despite playing 24 minutes off the bench. He hit three, but... He knocked down both of his three-point tries and all six of his free-throw tries. Williams is a freshman from somewhat near here in the locked-on ACC studios. He's from West Charlotte High School in Charlotte, North Carolina. He also had nine boards for the Seminoles last night. Raekwon Gray had 12. He also grabbed seven of his own boards. On the other side, though, looking at Carolina very briefly... There's a guy who's caught a lot of grief from Carolina fans this year, and he's kind of been the face of this bad Carolina year, whether justifiably or not. A lot of people have ripped Christian Keeling all year, and I've heard reasonable explanations as to why they have. I've heard not-so-reasonable explanations as to why they have. Just for disclosure's sake, I covered Keeling quite a bit during his time at Charleston Southern. Uh, He's a great kid and was incredibly talented at that level. I think to deny that he's struggled a bit at Carolina is not being totally factual. However, I think he's caught a lot more of the shrapnel than is necessary. But when you consider that even his coach has said some not so great things about him, including after the Gardner Webb win earlier this year, when a media member asked him about Keeling's performance and He said he finally hit a jump shot, didn't he? Among other things. Last night, he scored a high for his time as a Tar Heel. He had 14 points last night, did Keeling. He was 5 of 10 shooting and 2 for 2 from the stripe. Now, again, this might be a little bit too much of a stretch to make, but with Brandon Robinson out last night, is Carolina really still in that game without Keeling's 14 points? Maybe. But the 14 points also played a pretty significant role in Carolina's hanging around in that game last night. Cole Anthony again led Carolina in scoring. He had 16, but this is a frightening number if you're a Carolina fan. Anthony, 
went five for 22 last night from the floor without Robinson. He was three of 10 from three. Now, that's bad enough. Anthony went three for eight from the line in a game where you lose by six points when your star gets to the line eight times and hits three of them. That's kind of a problem. Also kind of a problem, Anthony, in two games since returning from injury, just 10 of 36 from the floor. I realize that Cole Anthony can't do it all, but when you when you have your star come back and he's 10 of 36, not good. Carolina shot 31% last night. They were 21 for 68. It also came up on the Florida State radio side that this Carolina team has its worst shooting percentage since the 1969 season and its worst performance from three since the three-point line was instituted. Not good if you are a Carolina fan. Of course, Carolina continues to slip out of the ACC race. Not that they were really in it to begin with, but their struggles continue. Some interesting points to ponder on the Carolina team, and I've seen a couple of things today about Carolina and their success this year or lack thereof. First, from Brian Ives at Away to Worthy on Twitter, had some some pretty interesting numbers about this Carolina team. He mentions that Carolina's played 11 games without Cole Anthony and 11 with him. Without him, they score 101.4 points per 100 possessions. With him, 96.3. With him, they average 10 post-up plays per game. Without him, 8. Those post-up plays, as he mentions, include only plays that have a final result, which is a shot, turnover, or foul. They pass to the post twice as much without Anthony. He also mentions there's an issue with moving without the ball. The Tar Heels average 8.5 cut plays per game without Anthony and 6.1 with him. Off of cuts, Carolina scores 1.2 points per play and shoots 60%. He mentions without as much movement, cutting, and post entries, there's more inefficient isolation play. In 11 games, Anthony's gone ISO 33 times. In 11 games without him, Carolina had 22 total ISO plays. He mentions that Carolina does get into transition more with Anthony around 19% of shots with Anthony come in transition without him 14%. That sounds good, but Carolina ranks 352nd out of 353 teams in transition efficiency. They average 0.797 points per play. There are a lot of things that can be taken from this. I've seen Carolina with Anthony in person You've heard a lot this year about Roy Williams talking about this team and about how they're the least gifted group he's ever had or whatever it was that he said. And I think part of that is fair. Part of it also falls on him because he's brought in all these kids. They've not clearly been successful as a team. There are a number of factors kind of creating a perfect storm in Chapel Hill. And for Williams to pass any of it off on Anything other than just all these things coming together is being a little bit disingenuous. Also, Ben Swain, good friend of ours from Sports Channel 8, among other places in North Carolina, points out some interesting things. And again, keep in mind, Ben's kind of a a Duke guy. But Ben has some interesting thoughts on this. He points out that Anthony and Armando Baycott are 122 of 282 from two-point range. Brandon Robinson, Christian Keeling, Justin Pierce are 62 of 201 from three-point range. 
And then he also mentions something that's not getting a lot of run and probably should. He says Leaky Black didn't make the leap he was supposed to make. That's an interesting point that not a lot of people are bringing up. Leaky Black has not had the year that I think anybody would hope if you're a Carolina fan. But Leaky Black doesn't get a lot of mention. A lot of the blowback seems to come toward Keeling, toward Pierce, toward even Anthony a little bit. But Leaky Black's struggles have really, really harmed this Carolina team. For example, this year, if you look at Leaky Black and look at his performance, he's averaging six points a game. He's averaging 2.3 assists per game. It's not really what you need from Leaky Black if you're looking for that point guard to take you to the next level. Last night against Florida State, he was 4 of 10 from the floor, 4 of 9 from 2. He had 10 points. He's broken the 10-point threshold twice other than last night. He had 12 at Virginia Tech. He had 11 at NC State. I don't think anybody expected Leaky Black to be a high-volume scorer, but you need more from him than 6 points and a little over 2 dimes per game. That's another thing we're kind of overlooking when we look at Carolina and look at their struggles. Tonight around the ACC, just two games. We mentioned Duke. They are in action. Number seven, Blue Devils. They are 18-3. and three. They'll be at Boston College. It's a 7 o'clock tip over ESPN. Duke minus 15 in Chestnut Hill. And 14-8 and eight, Virginia Tech travels to 10-12 and 12, Georgia Tech. That is a 7 o'clock tip over ACC Network. We'll talk a lot more about basketball, obviously, as this week progresses with a big one this weekend. Actually, a couple of big ones this weekend. And so, so much more. But for now, time to take the first break of the program. Come back, talk some football, some players on the move. You are listening to Locked On ACC. Welcome back to Locked On ACC. For February 4th, 2020, mentioned at the top of the show how to follow the program on social media. I should also mention you can follow me if you're interested. I talk about a lot of things not ACC along with a lot of things ACC. You can follow me at Sports Matters on Twitter. Again, that's at Sports Matters. I would love to interact with you in whichever place you would like to follow. We talked about basketball in the first segment. Let's move over to football because we had a couple of fairly significant transfers announced yesterday, the most significant of which being Chase Bryce, the former Clemson quarterback, landing at Duke. It's not all that commonly you see guys transfer within conference, especially somebody coming from a program like Clemson, but this is a significant addition for the Blue Devils. Chase Bryce, two seasons at Clemson, played in 23 games, 82 of 136 is a Tiger, 1,023 yards, nine touchdowns, four rips, but when you look at somebody who's a highly decorated transfer, the clearly the top transfer on the market, and you have a coach in David Cutcliffe who is very highly regarded when it comes to working with quarterbacks, and Duke clearly in need of a quarterback at this level. Not everybody's a Sam Howell. You're not going to be able to bring in a top-level freshman and get immediate production from a guy like that, but a guy in Chase Bryce who's been a collegian for several years now, has two years of eligibility remaining. He can come right into your program and lead you almost immediately. Now, Bryce, along with this, along with his success at the collegiate level, 
was a decorated high school quarterback as well. A lot of people lose track of that because of the conversation around Trevor Lawrence and Kelly Bryant and all these stars they had at Clemson. But let's not lose track of the fact that Chase Bryce came in with his own pedigree. As B.J. Bennett of Southern Pigskin notes, he led Grayson High School in Georgia to a 7A state championship as a senior through 33 touchdowns, three picks that year. They were in the top 10 in USA Today's polls that year. He was 40-7 and as a high school starter. I think I'd take that. BJ also reminds us that game against Syracuse, that Clemson won. You had Kelly Bryant out. Trevor Lawrence got hurt. If Bryce doesn't come in and find T. Higgins on that drive and lead that drive, the story of Clemson is completely different. But when you look at Duke and you look at a league where the Blue Devils are competitive, this is a guy who changes them from competitive to perhaps an upper-tier team in the ACC. Now, of course, they'll need more weapons around him, and they added one yesterday. But that's a pretty significant addition. There was a lot of talk about where Chase Bryce might end up. There was some talk about USF once they made their coaching change and several other players. But the big player that lands him is Duke. Something else that Ben mentions, we talked about Ben in the last segment, he also mentions something that the Devil's Den had regarding Chase Bryce. He says, Reading Chase Bryce talk about the transfer process highlights how well it can work for players if coaches actually act like coaches. He told Dabo, entered the portal, Duke called, Dabo recommended him, Bryce visited and committed. This is something we don't hear a lot about when it comes to the transfer portal. We hear about how this player's entering the portal and that player's entering the portal, and then we gnash our teeth about the portal and how good it is or how bad it is or how it's good that players can essentially beat free agents or how it's bad that players aren't committed to anywhere and that sort of thing. You also hear a lot about Dabo. A lot of people swear by Dabo. A lot of people are Dabo devotees. A lot of people don't like Dabo and think he's fake, whatever else. The fact that Dabo would recommend a player to a conference foe, again, we don't have all the insight behind it, but that is kind of telling that Dabo would think enough of a kid to recommend him and then have him land somewhere else in the conference. Now, of course, playing devil's advocate, some people would say, well, if he'd recommend him to Duke, he clearly isn't that concerned about him and doesn't really think that he'll come back to haunt him. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I'm not saying that Dabo Sweeney is someone who deserves to have the halo over his head or have you know, this kind of bright light shown upon him every time he takes the field, but also I don't think he's necessarily doing anything nefarious either. But good for him that he would make that recommendation if that's exactly what we've been told. Duke also landed Devery Hamilton, a starting tackle from Stanford, who's transferring over, a six foot seven offensive tackle, also visited Pittsburgh and Indiana. He's not necessarily going to be a game-changing player, started 10 games in two seasons, played in 15 games. But when you're bringing in a new quarterback, a six foot seven offensive tackle kind of helps. And again, there's that veteran presence we talked about, having a guy who's been around the block a little bit. We've seen a lot of great young offensive tackles, Mitch Hyatt at Clemson, if we want to go back to that. But having that veteran presence really helps when you're looking at a Duke team trying to make that next step. While we're talking about transfers, there were some other transfers that were brought up. And our friends over 24-7 Sports, again, mentioning some of those names. Evan Watkins over at 
the Virginia Tech 24-7 site, mentions a lot of names that are going to be around the ACC as transfers. Now, of course, there have been a number of names that have come out since this, but some names that they bring up. Phil Jerkovic, a big one, going from Notre Dame to Boston College. Again, we don't necessarily have a lot of data on him. Last season, 12 of 15, 222 yards, two scores at Notre Dame. He's still awaiting his waiver as of publication time. Jamarek Woods, another Duke transfer. He's coming over from Michigan. Not necessarily a big statistical season last year. Four tackles for the safety. He can immediately play. This is an interesting dimension that the transfer portal has added. When you start looking at teams with holes to fill, and we, we don't have time to get, obviously, too far into this, but it's interesting to see teams using the transfer portal to either completely rebuild their teams or to add that final piece. Florida State added a few players. Ja'Shawn Corbin, a running back who transferred from Texas A&M. 35 carries last year, 137 yards, a touchdown. He's still awaiting his waiver. Devontae Taylor, an offensive lineman transferring from Florida internationally, played in 13 games last year. He'll be immediately eligible. Jarrett Jackson, a defensive end transferring from Louisville. And Cornell Jones, a linebacker transferring from Purdue. Cornell Jones, 14 tackles, 3 for loss. He'll be able to immediately play. Jackson awaiting a waiver. Georgia Tech, adding Tennessee offensive lineman Ryan Johnson. Played in 12 games, started 3 last year. He's immediately eligible. Derek Allen, a Notre Dame transfer safety. Didn't play last year, but he's awaiting a waiver. The next big one, De'Eric King, the Houston transfer landing at Miami. If you think back a couple of weeks even, before all this came out, and you thought about De'Eric King, there was all this talk on national outlets about, oh, he'll end up at LSU. He'll end up here. He'll end up there. He'll end up at whatever school. And he goes to Miami. You saw what Miami's offense was last year. Sure, they have a new offensive coordinator. Sure, there's just as much pressure on Manny Diaz as ever. But does the Eric King himself transform that offense? Time will tell. Of course, last year before he announced he would be packing it in and sitting out the year, 58 of 110 for 663, six touchdowns, two picks, ran 55 times for 312 yards and six touchdowns. He's a dynamic playmaker. We know that much. It's just whether or not he'll be that guy for Miami. Also, Quincy Roche from Temple, 49 tackles, 19 for loss, 13 sacks, a defensive end. He'll be immediately eligible at Miami. And Jose Borregales, a kicker coming over from FIU, hit 72.4% of his tries last season. He's immediately eligible. While speaking of kickers, North Carolina landed a pretty strong kicker. Grayson Atkins, the Furman transfer, he's immediately eligible at Carolina. He hit 86.7% of his tries for the Paladins last year and was an FCS All-American. Pittsburgh landed another fairly interesting, we'll, we'll call him interesting, quarterback transfer in Joey Yellen, who transferred from Arizona State, 28 of 44 for 292 last season, threw four touchdowns, got picked twice. He has to sit out a year, but that's okay. Also, Lucas Krull, tight end transferring from Florida, caught three balls, 33 yards. He's immediately eligible. Syracuse landing Chris Bleich, an offensive lineman from Florida, started eight games last year. He's awaiting his waiver. Logan Sneed, the Syracuse transfer going to Virginia, 
as a linebacker. Didn't play last year, but is immediately eligible. Virginia Tech landing a couple of running backs. One also capable of playing receiver. Raheem Blackshear, who transferred from Rutgers, ran 29 times for 88 yards last year. Caught 29 balls for 310 and two touchdowns, awaiting a waiver for him. And Khalil Herbert, who transferred from Kansas, 43 runs, 384 yards, two touchdowns. He's immediately eligible. And Wake Forest also landed a transfer. Terrence Davis, offensive lineman, played in four games last year as a Maryland Terrapin. He's immediately eligible. Let's go ahead and take the final break of the day. Come back, talk some baseball, and our first hashtag GoACC moment of the program. Can't wait. This is Locked on ACC. Welcome back to Locked on ACC. February 4th, 2020. We've talked about basketball in this program. We've talked about football today and some of the transfers and things going on around the league, guys changing places. Let's talk about baseball for a minute. Don't you want to at least imagine yourself being somewhat warm? Sure, it's warm in the Carolinas, but if you're listening to me up in Chestnut Hill or Syracuse or Pittsburgh, our friends to the north, we love you guys, but it's probably not in the mid-70s up there. Everybody recalls the 2015 national champion UVA baseball team. I know I do. The announcement was made that the one-hour documentary 1186 to Omaha will be debuting Sunday, February 9th, that is this coming Sunday, 9 p.m. exclusively over the ACC Network. It's a Silverthorne Films production. Carl Ravitch narrates it. It chronicles Virginia's incredible run to the 2015 National Championship. The documentary states that it will contain reflections from Brian O'Connor, the UVA head coach, following the final loss to Vanderbilt in 2014 and playing the underdog, it says, in the 2015 tournament. I'm not sure I buy the whole playing the underdog thing, but they were kind of written off a bit. The Cavaliers regional and super regional series wins the moment when Nathan Kirby pitched the final out to solidify Virginia's 4-2 win in the College World Series championship final. Reactions following the final out from the title game and accounts from former Virginia Stars and World Series champions Ryan Zimmerman and Sean Doolittle on the culture O'Connor built in Charlottesville. I think the the thing that I want to hear in this, and I'm not sure whether we will or not, but if you're a Virginia fan, you're well aware of the voice of Channing Poole uh, chanting at an outstanding call of that final out. You can still find it on YouTube if you go out there and look, but... I'd love to see Channing get a little bit of mention in this program. If you're a Virginia baseball fan or follow them from far away, you'll know that Channing is the voice of uh, UVA baseball from many years past. Also, the Richmond Flying Squirrels voice. But a very integral voice to UVA fans. Hopefully Channing will get some run in that documentary. Oak has absolutely done some incredible things with Virginia baseball, and I think that even if you look at their struggles over the last couple of years, and they certainly have had some struggles, we'll see how this year shakes out. New pitching coach, some new talent, that kind of thing. Oak has absolutely solidified his stature in Charlottesville, and that that win, whether it came or not, certainly uh, wouldn't have hurt if he hadn't gotten it, but the fact that he did... I don't know if you'll ever see a better baseball coach in Charlottesville than Oak. While we're talking about baseball, it's almost here. February 14th, 
10 days from now, next Friday, we will have college baseball. Again, get warm. It's been cold all winter. You've been miserable. It's been turning dark at 5 o'clock every night. And you sit there and grumble as you sit in traffic or you walk outside after covering a game as some of us have done. And you, know, you write your story and it's 4.45 and it's already halfway pitch black outside. No more of that because baseball's coming in 10 days. It starts at 11 a.m. the 14th. And I'm not sure how many of these games will show up on ESPN Plus or any other televised outlets, but check ESPN Plus, check your local listings. 11 a.m., Conway, South Carolina is the place, just downstate from me here. San Diego State, Virginia Tech. The Baseball at the Beach tournament, which I've been fortunate enough to visit on a few occasions. That starts us off again this season down at Coastal Carolina University. That is the first game of the ACC baseball season. Indiana State and Pittsburgh follow at noon. That is the Snowbird Classic in Port Charlotte, Florida. Love that name, the Snowbird Classic. Three o'clock sees Middle Tennessee. Probably shouldn't comment on middle, having gone there. They will play at number 23, North Carolina. Yeah, I'll I'll comment on middle for just a second. Steve Peterson, their legendary head coach. I miss Pete. I really do. I will always remember, for as long as I live, the terms bucket giant whip and door knocking knuckles. You ever want to find out what those mean, ask me off air. Also at 3 o'clock, On the 14th, Boston College and Northern Illinois play in Winter Haven, Florida. Another 3 o'clock first pitch, JMU at number 16, NC State. 4 o'clock sees Army and number 15, Duke. Liberty at Clemson. Seton Hall at number 18, Wake Forest. That is the Wake Forest tournament in Winston-Salem. And St. Peter's at number 19, Georgia Tech. That is the Atlanta Challenge in Atlanta. Good name for that. The Atlanta Challenge in Orlando. 4.30, Pittsburgh at St. Joseph's. That is the Snowbird Classic, also in Port Charlotte, Florida, as we mentioned earlier. 5 o'clock, number 1 Louisville at number 25 Ole Miss. Also Notre Dame at UAB. 6 o'clock, Niagara at number 12 Florida State. Number 24 Oklahoma and Virginia in the Wahoos Classic in Pensacola, Florida. Which, if you've not seen that ballpark, it is breathtaking. I've not been there in person, but I've seen plenty of Overhead shots and various photos from friends who visited that place. I need to go there. And then 7 o'clock, Rutgers and number 3, Miami. Again, all those games next Friday. Put it on your calendar. Get ready. Baseball is here. Finally today on the program, I mentioned we would have some hashtag GoACC moments from things that happen in the ACC footprint. The fact that I love to make fun of stupid people and stupid criminals and those kinds of things. Let's close with something that happened in the ACC territory. Dateline, Santa Rosa County, Florida. Two men were not discreet in their plans to sell drugs in the Florida panhandle, according to officials. The Florida Highway Patrol arrested two alleged drug traffickers after troopers pulled them over on Saturday and found drugs in a bag labeled, wait for it, bag full of drugs. This is true. There is a photo to prove it. I'll have to share this later on the Locked On ACC Twitter account if you don't believe me. Troopers made the discovery after the men were pulled over for speeding on Interstate 10. The Santa Rosa County Sheriff's Office assisted in the search of the vehicle, which turned up methamphetamine, 
GHB, cocaine, MDMA, and fentanyl. Quote, note to self, do not traffic your illegal narcotics in bags labeled bag full of drugs. Our canines can read. The Santa Rosa County Sheriff's Office posted Monday night on social media. That's outstanding. Outstanding. And of course, if you are at all a, uh, a TV watcher, you've seen this whole thing about America's top dog, the show in which police canines are competing. I love police dogs anyway. I love dogs as it is. And the thought of a dog walking up and, you know, if you've ever seen a police dog alert on something, pointing out this thing, hey, human, they have a bag full of drugs. Outstanding. Well, on that note, this has been Locked on ACC for February 4th, 2020. Join us right back here tomorrow, same time. Well, same time whenever you listen to it. Same place. We'll talk more ACC sports. Again, Locked on ACC on Twitter. Follow us, comments. We'll see you tomorrow. Love you. Mean it. (laughs)